please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out from the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those who were with him, who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was God's son. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we are blessed this morning to have the Reverend Dr. John Guest. I'm, I was uh, blessed to meet John back in 1978 uh, in Pittsburgh, and Meredith and I joined St. Luke's or St. or St. Stephen's in Sewickley, Pennsylvania, in uh, 1979, and we were married by John. Uh, in that year, over 35 years ago. And uh, John then went on to sponsor me f- for the ordained ministry. So uh, John is a mentor, uh, a model, a friend, and just been a blessing. He and his wife Kathy have been blessing to Meredith and myself through the years. And John has a tremendous gift and calling to preach the gospel. And so we're blessed to have him here this morning to bless us with his words. And uh, rather than pray for John, John is so eloquent both in his preaching and his praying, I'm just going to let John pray for himself. And so... uh... I think I need to pray for Greg Kronz. (laughs) And even more so for Meredith, his wife. Wonderfully, you know, you've helped them raise a beautiful daughter, product of that marriage. I know they've got two great boys, but uh, just a week ago, my wife and I had dinner with Bethany and her husband. And wouldn't you know it, having been the child of Greg Kranz, she still married a minister. Can you believe that? What a deal. We had a great lunch uh, dinner, actually, together, and uh, she looks as beautiful as ever. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if you'll be uh, raising a grandchild with them somewhere along the way soon. That's not a word of prophecy, and there are no signs. <laughs> well, what a delight to be here. By the way, just let me mention this. On the back, I was thrilled to see this. In fact, I'm taking it home with me. We'll probably do a similar series at Christ Church now in Pittsburgh, where I'm pastoring, on the Psalms, just on the strength of what you've got written on the back of your service sheet here. One of the pieces... A word about the Psalms, take a look at it. Don't be reading it while I'm preaching, but just take a look at it right now. And that information about the Psalms is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. In uh, line with that, you have a great bookstore back in here. I went wonder, You've got an even better library. It's actually worth, I walked around and I saw some books worth stealing. And uh, then popped into the bookshop, this all after the 8 o'clock service. And uh, when I saw you had a bookshop, I brought some books with me that you may want to purchase. Seriously. Don't you be smiling at me and laughing. <laughs> One of them happens to be the New Testament. We're, we're nearly out of them because we've been here three or four days speaking in different venues. But there is a New Testament divided by the days of the year. And it's straight through New Testament. If you started reading today, where it's dated for today, in a year's time, you would have read the whole of the New Testament. But every day it takes one piece of truth and gives a great teaching on that one piece of truth. And uh, so you get something of consequence every day, kind of well prepared for you, separate from whatever else God may communicate from his word. And then a couple of other books that I've authored. But take a look back through there and discover your bookshop. Great children's books there for your grandchildren. Phenomenal stuff. All part of passing along significant truth. What we're into here is unbelievable. It's staggering. I mean, we do this Sunday after Sunday, and once we get used to it, it kind of rolls along. But what we're talking about in our service, the things we proclaim, even as we say the creed, the creed itself is like rifle shots of truth right through the brain. Brilliant statements of truth. And in a world that's so dark, full of relativism, agnosticism, and flat-out rejection of anything that calls itself truth. It's great to come out into the daylight of God's Word and get a grip of it. So I'm encouraging you to really take seriously, in this scripture that we're looking at here, Psalm 100, excuse me, Psalm 22. Take a look with me at it right now, will you? It's in your service sheet. So well read for us. And the Psalms are spectacular. This one is a messianic psalm. That is prophetic concerning the Messiah. It's a psalm of David. As you learn off the back of that sheet there with the teaching, David did not write all the psalms. He wrote this one. 
as he did Psalm 23, the very next one, the famous one. But Psalm 22 should be equally famous for this reason, that its prophetic statements concerning Jesus the Messiah on the day he died on the cross are overwhelming. It's almost beyond our intellectual grasp to see how God pulled this off. Because David is dated 10th century B.C. That's a long while ahead of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But what you read here is virtually a description of what happened on the cross. The Jews always took this psalm to be messianic. That is, speaking of the one, the anointed one, who was to come. And during the days of Jesus, the buzz in the crowd surfaced that the Messiah was on his way. Just to quote one instance, in John chapter 4, Jesus runs into the woman at the well. She's a desperate woman. The the conversation he had with her was so remarkable given her circumstances. It was to her that he said, if you drink the water I give you to drink, you'll never thirst again, but out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Who's looking for life like that? You are. These boys down here are. It's an exceptional statement like Jesus saying, I've come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness, more abundantly. Because a teenager, when I heard that, I knew that's what I was looking for, and I was irreligious. But that spoke immediately to me. Well, he said to that woman at the well, she knew they were talking about the Messiah coming, and she made this comment to Jesus. We know that the Messiah, when he comes, will lead us into all the truth. She knew they were anticipating. She was a Samaritan woman. She'd been through five husbands. And was married, not married actually, shacked up with a guy who was not her husband. And Jesus is having this conversation with her. And she knows for all that mess of her life and broken heartedness and rejection, because she didn't do the divorcing. She was divorced. It's hard to imagine that she had five husbands and they all died. Jesus said to her, when she said, we know that the Messiah is coming, He said this, I who speak to you am he. That is a showstopper. And she went running back through the village saying, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. That got their attention. They knew what she'd been up to. There were guys in that village saying, shut her up. (laughs) I mean, get real. But she says, he's out there talking about everything I've ever done. Could it be the Messiah? 
So they all came out to check him out. They were Samaritans. They weren't even full-blooded Jews. They knew. And this psalm here kind of knocks you off your feet when you get into it. Look at it with me, please. The very first verse. Where have you heard these words before? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus on the cross. So he knows this psalm. He knows what this is about. And at the time he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of what this psalm speaks of is going on. We'll get to that. But when that cry of dereliction, as it's called, is issued by Jesus, the reason he is derelict, deserted by his father, whom for the whole of eternity had been as part of the Godhead, he the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit, and now he's deserted by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Absolutely alone. Do you know why? Because at that moment, he was taking on himself all the filth and garbage of your life and mine and the world for all time. All the wickedness, the rapes, the brokenness of families, husbands who've deserted, the whole mess. My father committed suicide when I was age seven. He left my mother with three little boys and I was the oldest of them. I mean, life is real and life is tough. And Christ on the cross took it all on himself in such a manner that he is deserted and crying out in that desertion, now covered with our sins, now covered with all the angst and pain and disassociation, aloneness on the cross. He is crying out, why am I forsaken? Why have you forsaken me, Father? It wasn't that he didn't know or what he was headed into. He's now like one of us. Worse than that, he's the, as bad as all the badness of all of us in one moment on the cross. That's what was going on. Well, look further down with me. Verse 7. Check out verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. And let me ask you where you've heard these words before. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Exactly what was going on at the cross. Mocking and rejection. Look at verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. 
When they crucified Jesus, I know we have the image of him upright on the cross. They have discovered the remains of crucified men in recent years and they weren't standing upright with their legs sort of straight down, nailed to a little platform. They were arched backwards, shortened, and nailed to the cross so that they could barely straighten themselves up. And the pain of the cross was this. When you were like this and hanging down, when you drooped, you suffocated. When you pushed on your feet to hoist yourself up so you could breathe, not only was it unbelievable pain, but you're trying to straighten up a body that they won't let you straighten up. They've got you curved, shortened up, your legs bent back, and then nailed to the cross. And they leave you there to die. With all the bleeding and the beating even before you're nailed to cr the cross, you're not only suffocating, you're dying of thirst. Your mouth is dried up. Do you know what a potsherd is? That's a piece of old dry clay. Like a piece of pottery. Dried up in a dry land. Your mouth, your tongue cleaving to your gums. His heart melting within him. When he was thrust through with a spear, water and blood poured out his side. Look further down with me. It's an amazing statement. Verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion was not known in that day. That's not how the Jews killed people. And the Roman Empire hadn't come into being. And crucifixion was the way that the Romans chose to execute you and make an example of you. They lined highways with crucified men. To intimidate, subdue any further insurrection. And here is David writing prophetically of the Messiah that they pierced my hands and my feet. And quite extraordinary. Look at this. The very next verse, verse 17. I can count all my bones. They broke the legs of the other two men crucified with him because they were still alive. Jesus was already dead to make sure he was dead. They didn't break his bones, his legs. They just drove a spear in his side. But they broke the legs of the other men so that they couldn't in any way push themselves up. And it absolutely sped up their death as they suffocated all the more quickly. But Jesus' bones were not broken. He couldn't number them, count them. He was intact in terms of his bones. And look at this next amazing statement. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them 
and cast lots for my clothing. That's almost incidental to anything that's going on there. But how amazing that that's covered. He died with nothing. He had nowhere to lay his head. The one thing he had was the clothes on his back. And when they stripped him of those to nail him to the cross, rather than tear up his cloak, his single covering, they gambled for it. Described right here. Now let me point some things out. I mean, here you are, 10th century BC, seeing a description of Jesus dying on the cross. Theologians have pretty much worked out and estimated that there are 300, listen to this, 331 different prophetic references in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, Jesus. You read Matthew's Gospel, it constantly says, because it's written to the Jews, to fulfill the Scriptures. This he said to fulfill the Scriptures. Even the things he said, like, I thirst. Fulfilled Scripture. And the Gospel of Matthew says, this he said to fulfill the Scriptures. 331. Now a statistician brought his modern day technology to the numbers here. Take a moment and think seriously with me about this. As this statistician, John Stoner, writing in the book that he wrote, Science Speaks. He's dealing with the science of statistics. And they dealt with the numbers of people between certain years and the prophecies in those years and the possibility of one man fulfilling just six of those 311 prophecies in his lifetime. You got the issue? Given the numbers of people over the numbers of years that the prophecies are said, that given the statistics, that only six of them applying to one man in his life, that the odds of that are ten to the power of sixteen. That is 16 zeros. To give you an idea of how vast that number is, if you were to take silver dollars, enough to cover the state of Texas to a depth of two feet, those are the odds. Put more graphically, that you took one of those silver dollars, marked it, flew out over Texas in a helicopter, dropped that silver dollar somewhere in Texas, and then called Greg Kronz, <laughs> blindfolded, 
to go rambling around Texas and he stoops down, picks up one silver dollar and it's that one that's marked. Those are the odds. What you have in front of you is one of those evidences that the scriptures really are the word of God, number one, just starting there, but number two, that Jesus really is the Messiah, the real deal. Therefore, he wasn't sort of incidentally just because the folks there got ticked off at him, ex executed. This was God's plan built in in some amazing way so that David in one psalm, without knowing what he was really saying, was describing for us what we now, is, now know as history. And the fact of all this is this. That Jesus, who walked from the grave alive, also prophesied in the Psalms. Walked from the grave alive, acknowledged as God in the flesh, beating death, resurrected to life, ascending to glory. We'll say all these things in just a few moments. That Jesus is alive and present here. And whatever's going on in your life, nobody escapes pain. I don't care who you are. Nobody escapes pain. Whatever distresses in your life, whatever intellectual, conflicted doubt you have, you've turned up in church and it's like, do I really believe this? Is this real? Did Jesus really pay for all my sins so that all that filthy stuff that I've seen, said, thought of, dreamed of, and done is taken care of? That he paid for it all. That when he cried from the cross, it is finished. The word in the Greek in John's Gospel, to telestai, that he'd really paid for all our sins. That word means paid for in full. That every single stinking, mean-spirited thing you've ever said or done or vast immoral behavior, plans, dreams, paid for in full. So that when someone stands at the holy table here and quotes Jesus who says, this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for, next phrase, the forgiveness of sins. That that's a symbolic statement of a vast reality that Christ has taken care of that piece of business. That's why he was named Jesus. means saviour. Says Matthew, because he'll save his people from their sins. And for us to get that reality, and then in the midst of stress and strain, what kind of a week have you had? Any of you have a fight on your way to church this morning? <laughs> Claire and all. 
I read this little piece about her. You don't know, she's not in this congregation. She wrote a piece that got published. And this is what it said. It was one of those days. I had a headache. The phone kept ringing. My one-year-old was crying. I got a bill that I couldn't even pay. I lifted up my one-year-old, put him in the high chair, and leaned my head down on the high chair and sobbed. And she said, without saying a word, her little boy took the pacifier out of his mouth and put it in hers. That's some kind of day. That's some bright kid. <laughs> I got this letter. I mean, this is where the rubber hits the runway. Right where you and I live. I could go on and on giving you true anecdotes of my life and my wife's life. And the times we've just sobbed with the pain of it woman sent me this letter. I'm reading her handwriting. She said, Dear Father John, I'm 35, female. I am single through separation. I am mother to four children. I have lost two children. I have lost my home and all my furnishings. I've lost my car. I'm not close to my mother or sister or brother or father. I have lost my husband. I've recently moved 3,000 miles, that's from the west coast, east, left behind friends. My two children are seldom with me as I work long hours. I'm usually very short-tempered with them. I've gained too much weight. My whole self is ugly. I find little reason to live my life. If I could... I'd give every workable part of my body to some needy person just to guarantee my certain death, as life has so little reason for me. I'd give my two beautiful children to someone who prays for a son or daughter. Everything has been taken from me. Everything I've loved or cared about or wanted or worked hard for. I'll die, and no one will come to my grave. I'm alone, but I have one thing, a mustard seed of faith. Because I hear you preaching that Jesus loves me and died for me. That woman got to, I, I found out who she was. Do you know how I found out who she was? She didn't sign it. I read the letter the next week from the pulpit. Said, if you're this woman, please come and speak to me. And she did. Asked Jesus into her heart. Her father who was dying in the hospital 
invited Christ into his life and I baptized him in his deathbed with water I'd brought back from the River Jordan. And they were reconciled. All because Jesus is alive and is for real. Worked in the depths of her pain and aloneness a miracle of reconciliation. I don't know what you're dealing with, but our Lord Jesus is more than able to take it on and is so real here this morning that it's as if he comes to each one of you singly, individually and speaks to your heart, speaks to your mind, convinces you that he is for real, that you might surrender your life to him. This is not a ho-hum moment. This is a moment that changes destinies and families. It's wonderful that we're baptizing three children here this morning. I guess you guys sitting in the front row, you're the lady whose head is down on the, the high chair, right? <laughs> Greg's been bragging on you. Your pastor here. I knew all about you yesterday. As we talked about the wonder of this moment as you bring your three children to be baptized. This is not time just going by. And each of you knows it in your own way right now. So let me ask you, bow your heads with me. And as you sit there with your head bowed, see by faith the Lord Jesus coming right to you. And this is your moment with him. Today, right now, as you look at him, and in your mind's eye you see him looking at you, loving you, loving you with all the love he had for you in dying on the cross for you. Look at him. And then in your own heart. Why don't I ask you to say this out loud with me? If you're able to say the words, say them with me. So like a child leading, being led by a parent, let me lead you and you say after me, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for coming to me this morning. I need you. Come into my life. Fill me with yourself. Drive out the darkness. Forgive me my sins. 
Give me the joy of a living faith. I give myself to you. All that I have and all that I am, I give to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Amen.